This is the Frontier Podcast, powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe, and follow us on Twitter at The Frontier Pod. Liz Fong Jones is a 15 year site reliability engineer. She's a former Google and current SRE and observability advocate for Honeycomb.io. Liz evangelizes building excellent systems that both look out for people who use the system and for the people who work on it. In this fascinating episode, she talks with Ledge about wide-ranging ethical issues in engineering and how it's a business advantage to say you're an ethical engineer. Liz, it's so cool to have you on. Thank you for making time for us. Hey, thanks for having me, Ledge. For anybody who's not familiar with you and your work, would you mind giving you know, his background story a little introduction? Sure. I have been a site reliability engineer or DevOps engineer or whatever the heck you call it, a systems engineer of some flavor for the past 15 years. Um, started my career working in video games and academic publishing, and I spent about 11 years at Google, and I recently quit uh, over ethical reasons and switched to working for a startup. And I am now kind of, instead of doing some amount of SRE work on my own, but I also am primarily focused on helping people run systems that don't burn them out. So kind of thinking about what makes a production system excellent. Gosh, there's a lot to go into there, you know? Yeah. So obviously, you know, you're talking to a lot of freelancers, right? And I, I know that that product and, and client and sort of involvement is important. You know, people want to believe in what they're doing and support, you know, their, their own uh, value sets, you know, through the work that they put out there. And I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, creative integrity that, that goes in there. So yeah, please, please talk about that. Are there heuristics to, to even think about how do you check what you're working on to make sure that it matches where you want to be and what you want to do? I think that one of the fascinating topics that I went through with every company I was interviewing at after I left Google was asking them the question, are there categories of customers that you wouldn't take on, right? Like, what's your criteria for declining a client? And I think that that goes both for companies as well as for individual people, that you have to think about, you know, would I feel comfortable if the software I was building was used as part of a lethal weapons kill chain, right? Or a more... A less extreme example, am I comfortable with working for a company that is practicing uh, practicing discrimination or exclusion of certain categories of people? Or more mundane decisions that we make around, like, how strongly am I going to advocate that if I'm building an app that I make it accessible to people using screen readers or people that have tactile uh, issues with using, like, a, a touchscreen, right? Like, there are a lot of interesting areas that are kind of interesting ethical choices because they are where we express our values. And so, yeah. Uh, wow. That's, I mean, there's three big questions right there. I mean, but how do you even like get into that? If you're sort of, um, you know, a person that, that isn't familiar with kind of evaluating your work in that way, I think we all maybe have a sense that we would like to work for a thing that aligns well with our values, but you, you actually have distilled this into sort of like a, a question set or, or something from your own experience that kind of goes, Hey, I do want to know about that. How can you advise people to ask those questions well and properly? I think a lot of it boils down to the questions that privacy reviewers ask uh, at larger companies, right? Like who is the intended user of this? 
who is a bystander who could potentially be a unintentional user of it or unintentionally impacted by this, right? And kind of asking those questions that go beyond the immediate impact of your work, right? Kind of understanding what's the broader business strategy? Why is someone coming to you through your expertise? I think that there was a story recently about the engineers at a company called Clarify that uh, ends in AI um, that was, were doing kind of image recognition work that it turns out that the engineers in the company weren't told, hey, by the way, this is being used by the Pentagon, right? And you have to be prepared to ask those deeper questions, right? Like not just what am I building, but kind of who are the indirect users? Kind of where is this going? Where is this leading? Yeah, it must take like, uh, takes a lot of like, personal and mental fortitude to kind of risk your income and and make those choices and be the the boat rocker is that something that came naturally to you or do you have to like evolve to that that point because i don't know it just takes a lot of strength to stand up and and ask i think it's a larger issue for folks who are working salaried for companies where they could potentially lose their full-time job you know, there are plenty of opportunities that are out there. And in fact, it's a business advantage to say that you are an ethical engineer, right? It is a business advantage to advertise. These are the things that I want to work on. These are the things that I don't want to work on because people know that if they give you work and that's aligned with your mission, that you're going to do an excellent job of it. You're going to be passionate about it. And people seek out those opportunities. Whereas, you know, if you start working in a company as a full-time employee, you don't necessarily have a lot of direct say over it aside from striking or, or walking right, out. Right. 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 Both of which I guess you have experience with, but you know, like, uh, yeah, I mean, just like, it's amazing to, to think then, um, the only place I can think that I've, I've seen that come up is, you know, sort of someone who can go, I'm a certified ethical hacker, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of a white hat, but I mean, you're really gonna, you're advocating to expand that into the broader set of, uh, yeah. I guess it applies to anybody, right? Like I, yes, it's about engineers, you know, in the context that, that we're all talking, but there's certainly no reason that it couldn't be the, uh, the bookkeeper or the financial person or, you know, HR. I mean, any of those things, they're, they're going to touch all these areas. This is, um, it's like a more human kind of business exposing a whole layer that maybe we haven't talked about before. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Although I do think that engineers, if we're going to call ourselves engineers, we actually have engineering professional responsibilities, right? That people who are mechanical engineers have a duty to not cause harm with the structures that they build, right? To make sure that they're engineered safely. And I think that we need to think about that if we're going to call ourselves software or computer oh, engineers. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. But kind of speaking, speaking of the subject of kind of going beyond and looking at the implications of the software that we build, I think that there's also an area that I'm super interested in, which is the idea of building excellent systems, right? I think that building excellent systems has to look out for users, but it also has to look out for the people who run the systems, okay. who are often us, or in the case of people who are working freelance, who are going to be the people who are your client, kind of your longer term clients, right? The people who have to maintain the stuff that you set up for them. And how do you set up the durable process so that it so that you have long-term happy customers and not just yeah. I mean, talk about that. What's an what's an excellent system or the hallmarks of or how do I know that I'm excellent or not? Yeah, I think that an excellent system 
is part uh, a system that minimizes complexity, that reduces the amount of overhead of stuff that is incomprehensible, hard to understand, and that you're designing it to have appropriate degrees of visibility so someone can look under the hood without having to necessarily rebuild the whole car, right? Right. But I also think that there's a there's a piece with our customers of having to instill in them that they they are going to be the long term owners of this, right? That they have to ask you now and kind of instill that culture of curiosity to be able to ask the questions rather than being handed a box and then you know, okay, here you go. Well, I guess I don't know how how it works. I guess you know, <laughs> I'm going to come back to you in six months or twelve months asking like, hey, Ledge, what you know, how did you build this? Yeah, well, that happens all the time. Yeah, and and. And we often, you know, really want to educate people on, you know, you got to make, um, you know, I, I come from, you know, more, maybe more of a business and organizational background. And I think a lot about business continuity. You know, are we making choices that are sustainable? Um, you know, absolutely you know, ethical and, and the right things. And also just, you know, like, let's say we have a fiduciary duty to the people around us in our business. You know, we've got to make choices that at least can help drive the going concern here and by making and shortcutting decisions that are cheaper or don't take care of people or you know build things that are total technical debt disasters waiting to happen you know are we really making good choices for the business and they're markedly not excellent systems if you kind of don't put the the time and energy into that yeah, so it's definitely, you know, reducing complexity where you can, using patterns that people understand well, right? Like not inventing your custom framework is something off the shelf will do. Documenting, right? Like here's what to do to stop the bleeding if something does go wrong. And then here are the common places to start debugging the system. And kind of all of these various choices that you can make around how do we architect this thing and how do we design our culture around it? And I think that, you know, if we're coming in at a more senior level, also thinking about how can we model good behavior to people as well as just giving people There's code. not a lot of hours in the day left if you do all those things at the same time. And I completely agree with you that, you know, that is incumbent upon leadership and, uh, and, and the leadership that anybody can take in their given role, you know, lead from the bottom, lead from the middle, lead from the top, you know, the different types of things. Um, you know, if you're in a resource constrained environment, there's going to be a lot of pressure to kind of think about allocating capital, you know, human or otherwise. Um, how do you advise people to to make that balance when it just feels like, gosh, every minute we spend, you know, is so valuable because we're burning cash like crazy? Yeah, I think everything has to reduce to that argument you had about uh, managing using business risks, right? Like, can you quantify the risks? Can you talk about what would happen? How, how likely is this to happen? What's the blast radius, right? Like, these are all great questions that can help you really narrow down what's a priority. For instance, you know, I in this most recent talk that I wrote, I use this analogy of you have a bridge that's falling apart. Cars are falling through the roadbed. You know, maybe it needs an earthquake retrofit for when the big one comes in 20 years. You know, which one are you going to fix first? Well, you're probably going to fix the fact that cars are falling off the roadbed because there's no safety rail, right. right? So kind of figuring out what's important to fix, what really impacts the bottom line versus what's a nice to have, right? Like what are customers actually complaining about? What are people churning because of? What are employees quitting because of, right? Like that's also a risk to consider yeah. is 
your system is not going to run itself, right? You know, we aim, we aspire to that, but at the end of the day, humans run our systems and if they all quit, then your system won't run. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You get this idea that, uh, I mean, most companies are spending, you know, 60 to 80% of their total cost load on, on humans. And, um, you know, what do we do to, to make sure we get, return on investment, you know, and, and like you said, in an ethical way too, you know, so that we can't treat people like cogs. They just run them into the ground. The highest way to get ROI is going to be work 24 hours a day. You also can't do that, you know, because there's, there's downstream impact. And yet companies try to put people on call for 24 hours straight. And it ends really badly when you have, you know, people who are tired and fatigued making bad decisions. Right. right? And that's a business risk to highlight, right? Is that if you don't have this idea of focusing on production excellence, one day it's going to result in a catastrophic outage. Right, like or drop a table in production or, you know, whatever. Like everybody has their manifestation of that where like, oh, you know, there's no one do button because I was, I was tired, you know, and three days later into my production problem, you know, I'm, I'm making... Uh, radical errors, you know? So, I mean, and we've all seen that happen. And I imagine in the SRE seat, you've seen some insane things, you know, sort of cause not reliability. Any, any good stories there? Oh yeah. I can think of a fair number of them, although, you know, client confidentiality (laughs) is important. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I think that there's another area that we haven't really touched on, which is kind of the dark debt concept, right? You know, everyone understands the the technical that you can see, but it's harder to understand when people are spending, you know, the first 20 or 30 minutes after they get paged, staring at a wall of dashboards or reading playbooks that are out of date, right? Like, or things where they don't have the appropriate level of visibility into the system before they even can start fixing it, right? Like, I think that's an insidious form of debt that people don't necessarily think of, right? Because it adds to every outage that you have, but it's not necessarily in your face with eyes blinking. Yeah, I've never heard that. I totally understand what you're talking about. Yeah, dark, dark debt. That's a a great phrase. You know, it's like the dark energy of the universe that adds all the weight, right? Yeah. And repetitive problems that, that we could address maybe with, I don't know, you know, documentation spike or, you know, any, like at least you have to pay those off in mass because I think they do have, uh, if you will, the highest interest rate of, of any of the, the problems. And, and you're right, they bleed you to death because you weren't paying attention to it. Yeah, totally. So I think that a common metric that I use to think about is when you have something that alerts a human being, you have to ask the question, you know, was it actually urgent? Uh, is this something that we're running into over and over? Is this actually a new problem? Did we do something about it? Or is it just something that that we could do nothing about? And did we actually like, did we actually try to address some of some of the uh, leading causes of it? And I say causes plural, because like stuff is maybe triggered by one thing. But like, if you look at everything that's happening, and you talk about the question, how rather than like, why did this happen kind of service level, but instead ask the question of how did this happen over and over, right? I think that generates a lot more insight into how we can make our systems more resilient. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm reminded of when I had to write, you know, all kinds of, uh, you know, cron jobs and alerts and and everything. And you kind of go like, I really ought not to send this email unless it links directly to documentation that allows someone to fix it because we've all had log fatigue and Slack fatigue and, and it's really easy to go send that to DevNull and uh, auto trash those emails and mute that Slack channel because it's it's completely overwhelming. And uh, it is, I guess, incumbent upon on SREs in general to, to make sure that uh, – 
you provide an environment where people feel empowered to be able to fix the thing when it does happen. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I know of environments that didn't have production excellence where people felt unsafe to turn off alerts because someone was saying, you know, oh, my God, you know, this broke 10 years ago and we caught it because of this alert. Right. Like, But you have to look at the signal to noise ratio. You have to look at kind of do people feel empowered to run the system as it is today and actually make it better? Yeah. And like, what the hell is that error? You know, hey, that happens every day at noon. You know, and it, it, it's it's sometimes the canary in the mine, <laughs> you know, like we aren't finding out root cause analysis on this. So it comes up every day and, oh, look, now it brought down, you know, the entire system. All of a sudden, then people care, you know, and I, I think it's also incumbent on us in that seat to translate some of this stuff into a metric that, you know, maybe business users or people in decision making positions uh, capital allocation positions can kind of go, it's really, really important. Then this is not showing up in a line item on on your income statement, but but it is, you just can't tell. I think this ties to the first thing that we were talking about too, right? Like when you start speaking up about kind of these production excellence items, that kind of lends itself naturally towards in the long term talking about these ethical risks as well of, you know, sure, it's going to boost your bottom line in the short term, but what about employee morale? What about employees who feel that they were tricked, right? And kind of you can start having these conversations, not just about dark debt, but also about ethical issues. Isn't there dark debt in all of our organizational decisions as well. You know, I think one thing that we can trick ourselves into doing is is drawing these, you know, glorious pictures of our organization and our culture that, you know, sticks and boxes and look at this communication and this is so great. Um, but I think of it, you know, from maybe from some of my sales and marketing experience, you know, the the funnel is leaking no matter what. The question is where's the leak? And if you don't know where the leak is, you know, chances are pretty good that it's it's actually worse than you think. And, and that, um, not flagging it, the unknown unknowns or the ones you willfully ignore, you know, in your cultural development, I think is going to cause the biggest payoff later when, when people do leave, you know, it's sort of uh, when Atlas shrugs, if you will, and the people that are actually doing the work, you know, kind of all take off for, for utopia. Um, what do you recommend on the cultural development front. You know, it's, it's so easy to ignore this stuff and it is the most expensive dark organizational debt. Yeah. I think it's helpful to have a practice of, have you heard of the concept of a pre-mortem? <laughs> Predicting, I'm guessing all the things that, that could go wrong. Yeah. Right. Like it's kind of an interesting exercise in terms of asking yourself, okay, we launched the thing that we're working on. The news reports say that it's a disaster. Why right. is that, right? You can't necessarily predict everything, but you can think about what are some of the potential things out there and then think about not necessarily patching each one of them, but instead thinking about, okay, what are structural processes for encouraging fixing those issues before they become crises, right? So talking about unknown unknowns, you can at least use your known unknowns to kind of bootstrap the techniques that you need to use to approach that either organizational or technical complexity. It doesn't matter which really, right? Like, can you ask those questions? Do people feel safe raising their hand, right? Like the Boeing thing is like going to be a huge case study. Like I can see it in all of the business school textbooks 20 years from now, right? Like 
where are the engineers who said, hey, wait a second, this 2.5% degree change is actually turning sure. into a five sure. degree change, right? It's like, the same way that the, you know, the, those of us old enough, right, remember the the challenger, you know, and the, and the great uh, body of, of case study work that came out of, you know, sort of saying, hey, groupthink is bad, right? And, and then, you know, the work, uh, you know, that comes out around the, the psychological safety. It's just like, our, our technology and the solutions we build are going to mirror the organizational complexity in which they were built. Right. And it's sort of like, you know, pets and their owners start to look the same. I think, you know, it's just like that, that does happen. And uh, the question is, does that align to a, a set of values that we can all, you know, be honest about when we're, when we're launching an organization that has a vision and mission and I think the other cool thing here is thinking as well about not only is it safe for people to raise concerns, but also is it safe is it safe for everyone you're bringing onto the team to raise concerns, right? Like it doesn't make sense to build a diverse team and then not listen to their concerns, nor does it make sense to say my team is not diverse. Everyone feels perfectly comfortable raising their concerns, but if they're in the room, but the people outside the room are right. not listened to, right? Like I think that's a area of organizational yeah, risk as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, there's so much opportunity for diversity of, of thought. And, um, and there's also, there's as much opportunity for giving lip service to diversity as, as if it's some kind of destination, you know, that, well, yay, we're diverse now because we can measure a metric. But what do you do with that very, very powerful tool once you maybe have, have checked off some of the, the KPI boxes? Finishing thoughts, Liz, um, you know, what, what do you want to have 10,000 freelancers know from your experience and that, that can make their career path, you know, more rewarding. Yeah. I think that it's important to vet your clients, understand what is it you're building, who is it going to directly and indirectly impact and including in the set of people that are impacted, who are the people running the systems? Because the people running the systems long-term are definitely in that set of people who have to live with the decisions that you make as well. And therefore, kind of think about how are you decomplexifying things? How are you listing out kind of the risks that you're aware of and mitigating some of that by thinking about how do we expose all of these signals that we need and how do we make people safe to raise these concerns about, you know, I think that was not instrumented well enough or, hey, can we understand how this, uh, how, how these two components interact, right? Kind of all these ranges of problems that we can address earlier rather than All of which when you know fail. bring you more complexity that you can then break down into less complexity so it looks like our job is never finished yeah the job is never finished but we have a especially high leverage industry right we can always kind of address problems as they arise and try to get ahead of Liz, it thank you for the insights i know you're extremely busy and that you just started new things so Best of luck in all of that. It is awesome to have you on. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer. Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, 
head over to gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.